0: So, uh, tonight I'd like to talk about an evolution towards stillness. And I want to bring in uh, some science, if I can, and a little bit of evolution. I hope that those of you who are right wing Christians don't freak out too much. (laughs) And (laughs) I'll have to erase that from the talk. And also, uh, hopefully, a good uh, quantity of Dharma and all of that as well. So, um, as I mentioned, I was—I've watch- been watching this cosmology series, and uh, this man who uh, finds himself drawn into the mystical uh, relevance of what he's saying from time to time. Can see and just kind of go out there. In one place, um, he was mentioning that uh, except for hydrogen and helium, and I think lithium, which were formed very soon after the Big Bang, all the other elements that, uh, of the periodic table, and there are some hundred, aren't there? Some hundred elements, all the other elements were formed uh, in dying stars. Supernova, as stars collapse upon themselves, their furnaces um, begin to fuse the different elements together, so that they build upon themselves into higher and higher elements. And then these supernova reach a certain critical uh, density, and they explode outward. And so the elements uh, outside of hydrogen and helium are. Ex, um, the guts of the stars are distributed across the universe. And then as gravity pulls these elements together around suns and uh, the orbit systems of uh, solar systems, uh, they come into the gravitational pull of the sun and eventually into planets like the Earth, and then we are born out of the Earth's elements. And in fact, we are the stuff of stars, the elements of our body. And if you want a scientific sense of oneness, I don't think there's any better feel for that than the physicality of our own bodies. The other uh, science composite that I'd like to just... Uh, bring forth is that uh, he in this lecture series talks about the infinitely small and the infinitely large. He says you can go in either direction and uh, access a kind of infinity within the small or the large. And of course he was talking about the large in his series and he talks about the enormous expanse of the universe and which, as I mentioned, the universe itself creates the space through to which it unfolds. As it accelerates and expands outward, it creates the space in which it expands into. And at one point, uh, he uh, brings the question for us, how does the universe know, for instance, in its original form, as it exploded outward, how does it, how does it know to make... Uh, Uh, a a billion uh, protons to one, or a billion neutrons to one proton, or some, some mixture of that number. How does it know to do that? How does it know to get the numbers right? He says the knowledge to do that, we think, he says, is embedded in the space of the universe itself. That's his best guess. You see, the intelligence is everywhere. The intelligence is everywhere, it radiates everywhere. The enormous expanses of the universe. And if you go to the very small, and if you see, as, as you talk about the large, you see the cosmology moving, not through force of will, but forming clusters of galaxies that shrink and explode upon themselves, forming other galaxies, and giving birth to nebulae, which are form the stars, through their own solar winds and gravitational pull, they form from the interstellar uh, ingredients. Other stars are formed in these nurseries. And that this whole sense of movement and creation that's happening at the very large scale, not through force of will, not through control, And if you go in the other direction, to the very small, you just go down a step to the cellular level. The cells are moving in ways that are uh, very um, in line with the uh, s- a sustaining power of, of all of this and all of this. But they're moving not according to anyone's drive or will or control but in a rhythm all their own, in a mystery of a rhythm all their own. And you can go down even lower to an even smaller level of scale. And you can see uh, the, it turns into a chaotic, uh, microscopic universe in which things will disappear or two things will appear simultaneously in two different places. Or... And just to give you an example of that, if you take two electrons in orbit with one another, one has a positive uh, orbit, perhaps clockwise, one has a negative orbit, uh, perhaps counterclockwise, and they spin uh, within the same orbit of an atom. You take those two electrons and you put them vast distances apart and you change the spin of one electron very far away from the other, and the other instantaneously changes in the opposite direction not at the speed of light which means one would have communicated to the other but instantaneously which means they are the same object how do we how do we how do we how do we hold something like that how do we hold that and if you go to the very smallest smallest quark composite and you go to the very largest size of the universe itself, this dimension of reality is exactly in the middle between those two. Mystery to our left. Mystery to our right. But we've drained this dimension of mystery entirely. (laughs) Isn't that amazing, what we have done? When you can look at a cell and be completely, completely Uh, overwhelmed with the majesty of that movement. When you can look at the birth of stars and galaxies, and yet somehow the determination of our need to control ends up in the dimension right between this vast mysteries on either side of us. I find that extraordinarily arrogant that we would think that we were in control of this extraordinarily arrogant. And in fact, when we start checking out what we mean by the sense of control, it gets very tentative. Very tentative. And I would suggest that each one of us pay attention to whether... we are actually in control of this moment at all, or whether we think we can then influence this moment in some future moment, and that's where our control comes in. Not in the moment of its expression, but in some future time. It's never in the moment that the control is occurring. The moment is already occurring. It's just that we weigh in at some, trying to influence how this moment will unfold. So now I want to get into the heart of what I wanted to speak about, which is the evolution of ourselves as a species from what started out as a very quiet species. I don't know. I uh, visited not too many years ago in Seattle a, um, a moving exhibit of Lucy the 3.2-million-year-old hominid who was about this tall. And uh, they had uh, around her, built around her, uh, a colony of like-minded or like species. And they showed him doing their various things, somewhat organized. And you wonder, you know, is the power of language at that stage of evolution, was there a power of language? What I was reading lately is that they they don't think language came into being sooner than about a half a million years ago. So I don't know. My own feeling is it came much earlier because when this species descended from the trees and went out into the grasslands, it was without defense. I mean, I can't think of another species that was as defenseless as ours. The monkeys at least stayed in the trees. Now, when we're out there in the grasslands, are we going to outrun the saber-toothed tiger? Obviously not. We don't have that speed. Are we going to outfight through our arms and legs? I don't think so. Probably a good-sized porcupine would take us down. (laughs) So we don't have the uh dexterity, the speed, uh the the um strength to make it as a species unless we had the cunning. Unless you unless you bring in the cunning. The cunning was our salvation. And the cunning naturally unfolds into an abstract language. Right? As, it, as we evolve the reason we could survive is because we no longer saw a stick, a stick. We saw it now as something we could make into a tool that would help defend us, a spear or an arrow. And so the need to abstract our life into objects around our, our existence was essential for us to survive. And we're not very tolerant of cold or heat, so we had to build or find caves or build shelters, etc. But in any case, each object was invested in not for what it was any longer. Listen now, listen dharmically now. Not for what it was, but for what it could be, its usefulness in the future. This stick is not a stick to me anymore. This stick is a weapon that I can now take out and either um, chase game with it or protect myself. And a rock isn't a rock. A rock has become something I can build a shelter with or it's something that I can use as defense as well. And so the world takes on now not a representation of of itself but becomes a means towards not only survival. So there's an awful lot of invested energy in looking at the world differently from the way it is so that we could have a world in which we are safe, in which we are protected, in which we have some sense of, of um, cunning which will protect us against the beasts of prey. And so as we invest into each object, each object begins to hold a story. And as we use each object further and further, more and more, we develop a whole storyline with each object. And as we build from those objects, other objects with their use, and the spear, now a spear is no longer a stick, it's a spear. and In the right frame of reference, it can be used as an arrow or it can be used to sling or shoot or it can also be used as an axle. And so each thing now can represent more and more of a disparity and further and further from the reality. And it's important to remember that our investment in these things was essential for our survival because survival genetically is connected, I believe, to the need to abstract. Now with each object holding a story from how I've used it, how other people have used it, how I've learned from other people, there comes into birth the storyteller. You can't have a story without a storyteller. There's someone who has been manipulating this natural world to make it into a world effective and efficient in the way I need, my needs are. So the storyteller is an abstraction. It's like a mirror and it's reflection. If you have a story, an object that holds many different meanings, then the reflection of that is the person who uses and has a whole mental recipe for how to use all the objects and its many uses. The story and the storyteller. The mirror and its reflection. And so now you have the reflection who is dependent upon the objects for the continuation of the story. For its survival, it has to abstract. And if you have enough investment in the storyteller because you need the objects. Are people following this? Okay. As you need the objects more and more, the storyteller takes on the same prominence. And so the storyteller becomes essential in its own survival. They so now it's moved from the survival of the species to the survival of the abstract. And so the storyteller, the sense of self, gets invested in for security, control, And certainty. So it's moved very quickly, I imagine it moved from a world in which I was completely out of control, there was just the organism and the raw surrounding, to one in which I've now gained control and mastery, but to in so doing. I've invested in the person who has mastered. And now, further and further, I am receding from reality. Right? Because reality now holds not what it is, but the alternatives to what we can make it. And so, as reality holds alternatives to what we can make it, and we now have a person, an abstract person. I know this is a little bit, but stick with me. Gets grounded. The abstract person now feels his own need for security. Because he or she or the the sense of self first of all must keep Abstracting in order to stay alive, because when the subject dies, so does the object. When the reality folds in on itself and it's just what I see, just what is here, this, the reflection of the mirror can no longer sustain itself without the mirror. And so to keep ourselves alive, we have to keep talking. We have to keep ourselves noisy. And by God, we do. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? See, even when you want to be quiet, you can't. Because genetically, it's, there's a link that has long since been forgotten, but a link between our security out on the plains when we were raw and vulnerable people to our security now as an abstract entity needing to verbalize for our own protection in safety. And somewhere genetically along those lines, that all got mixed up and confused. And we find ourselves in the state we are now in because of that confusion. And we learn, yearn to get back to the simplicity of nature because our lions aren't there anymore. And we don't know where all this got so confusing. And it's not because we taught our children Wrong. It's because genetically that's within our system. That's how the organism grows. That's how it grows. It grows into language. And so each object becomes essential for the survival of the storyteller. And we have lost all figure ground now. Because things didn't used to be disparate from one another. They didn't used to be separate. They didn't used to be isolated from one another. We had to isolate them to be able to pick them out and and condition them with a certain reference. Spear, stick, spear. And so now we have a world of things. A world of things and a story that's long and elaborate and very intoned in our system the history of humankind. Dense, dense history. And we just keep writing further chapters. And we are a subchapter of the whole species book. And we just keep our story going, going for the need of our own sense of survival. We've long lost any reference to what we are. And when we look, we don't find anything beyond the words. But we are afraid, the fear of the original, I believe, the terror of the original uh, Serengeti Plains, the plains where we were without protection, the fear, the terror of being out there, and the need that came from that terror, which was to verbalize and to to conceptualize is the fear we have now of not telling our story. The fear we have of being quiet because to be quiet means we are without protection. And that's genetic. That is in us so deeply that you will find, many of us have already perhaps found That in moments of real solitude you'll feel this enormous spaciousness but then very quickly the mind can seize seize in terror, in fear. I think that's the original terror of the species. I don't know this to be a fact but it feels that biting to me. And so to keep us from this terror, we have to keep our narrative going. It becomes, it's like, we lose our position without our narrative. It's our GPS system. Right? So at all times, we know our exact location, our coordinates. And we just keep reminding ourselves of what those coordinates are. We keep feeding in more and more data so that our coordinates can be known to us and verbalized. Now the narrative has long since turned against us. As long since we've reached the end of its effectiveness. And that's what we're doing here is that we're trying to find our way back to stillness. We're trying to find our way out of noise. And we don't know how to do it. And there aren't any obvious ways in our system to to access it. And there is a tremendous resurgence of the fear of actually doing it. And so we're very cautious. We want to give it a long time. We want to feel the safety of what we're doing. And that's why it seems that the spiritual journey takes such a long time. We're not sure we want to live quietly in ourselves. We're not sure we want to give up the noise. We're not sure what that means. It feels like something's going to be disassembled. Something is not going to be there that's vitally important to us. And genetically it has been. And we think, oh, I don't know, you know, we hesitate, we pause, we pause. And so in that pause, we fill that pause with more verbalization. We keep ourselves noisy. Very few times in the course of a 24 hour day in which we won't have some access to noise. Perhaps in deep sleep. Now, what this noise has also done to us besides created a world of objects and subjects that are separate from one another. you see, when you take when we accept the fact of of uh, of a, a conceptual world, of a world of subjects and objects that are conceived in image and idea, then you have, the distance between things. You didn't have distance before because there wasn't any separation before, but now you have distance, and you have things to surmount. So you have problems. You have an, a someone who has a problem with something. Didn't have problems before, but now you have. We have created the conceptual framework for there to be a distance between two things and to surmount this obstacle i have a problem i have to do something with it i have to do something to the object in order to surmount it yeah i just want to, all we're doing now is just looking at the extent of the problem you see we're just looking at how what the state of affairs is and so when you have distance Then you have time. Time is another creation of an abstract world. It's an abstraction. When you're sitting, where is the time? Where is the time? What do you mean, Rodney? I mean, I can show you pictures in my album of where I was young. You know, I'm gonna get old, on and on. But if you look, if you look, if you take yourself very seriously and ask yourself about time, You will not see time. You will not find it. You will find an idea of a past. You will find an idea of a future. You will find words that are associated with that idea. You will not, cannot, will not, will never be able to find the past or future. It is purely an abstraction created by the need to surmount a distance. I have to go from A to B. It's going to take me some time to... Travel that distance. So we have obstacles, we have distance, and we have time. And those are all of words. Those are all concepts. Those are all formed from abstraction. Now, as we begin to reverse the journey, which is what spirituality is, it's the movement from noise to stillness. There are many ways to conceptualize the spiritual journey. Many ways. The way the Buddha did it in his most acclaimed form is from suffering to the end of suffering. I am not suggesting a continuum that's outside of that. This is just a different way of framing the same continuum. From noise to stillness. When we are noisy, through our need to abstract and create distance and the use of time, and objects from that abstraction, the noise creates the pain of our suffering. And as we get quieter, as we allow ourselves to become still, we reverse that process. We reverse the process. We go backward in time, you might say, to when our species, in fact... The, fra- the, 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 the fact is, though, you don't, we don't go back to before verbalization. We don't become confused and walk into walls. (laughs) That level of interaction remains in our system and it will forever. I have no question because I think it's a genetic necessity. It also has extraordinary use. Look at everything it's done. Everything it's done. Look at any other species and look at ours and look at everything we've done. Extraordinarily constructive and and uh, creative, and uh, nobody wants to go back to wandering hopelessly on some plane. Okay, so it's not we have to we don't have to fear the reversal of our cunning. We don't have to fear the reversal of our ability to utilize objects in a conceptual way. We just no longer we what we will lose is the belief in the concept as being more important than the reality. See, look, look how it works. We sit down and whatever is happening to us, the reality of what's happening, we conjure up a different reality because that's what we do. This shouldn't be ha- Why is my pain? Why? I don't... I, this itch and this guy... You see, we're conjuring up alternatives to reality because that's what we do as a species. They're not doing anything wrong. That's just what we do as a species. That got our spear. But now we've turned it on each other. And perhaps most uh, destructively, we turn it on ourselves because we believe we're an entity. We've lived with ourselves, we have the story of ourselves. We've taken seed in ourselves. Our mother is a self. Our father is a self. Everybody told us we are a self. Self we are. We can read about other selves in our history. History of humankind. Selves we are. And so, if I take myself to be a self, then I better straighten up. Because I'm not as good as that guy over there or that person over there. And so this evaluative principle based upon time and distance, based upon judgment of objects, a good spear, a bad spear, hmm? comes with the territory. You don't want a spear made out of uh, a willow. <laughs> you want a spear made out of oak. Bad spear, good spear, <laughs> comes with the territory, doesn't it? Good you, good bad me, comes with the territory. And now, all of a sudden, we have an evaluative form because objects compare and contrast. And look and see. And and it's working against us now. And it's tiring. And it's burdensome. And the earth is full. It can't... There aren't places we can go where we can just be a little tribe and throw spears at each other anymore. Now we... Our nations are... It's out of control. And It's all out of control because of this investment in a lost concept in a forgotten abstraction. And we have to recover it. We have to go back. We have to go back to the our antecedent. We have to go back to the very basics of our organism and ask questions that we have never asked. Perhaps we haven't asked them in two million years or however long it has been an abstraction. It's not easy to ask these questions. These are asking questions against the momentum of millions of years of history, quite likely. And yet that's what we have to do. We have to ponder ourselves in ways that allows us to see what we are doing to each other and ourselves. We have to come to a new explanation, a new understanding of the basis on which reality works and see if we can now relax our need to abstract to come down into simplicity, to find the common denominator of stillness that lies within all things, not just within our species. We have to come back to the common ground that we left because we were afraid. And like anything, any fear that's been instilled in us along our historical route in which we have not completely owned and seen, when you were a child, the fear of X and Y. When you sink deeply into your psyche, that fear will reemerge because it has not been fully dealt with. So too, as a species, we have to face the fear, the existential fear that was there to drive the whole force from the day it was created. Does it sound so difficult? It sounds like, oh, I can't... Wait a minute, stop, stop. No, because as we begin to pick apart this psyche, we find it to be harmless, not full of terror, not full of animals lurking in the background. Archetypical images, perhaps, but nothing vicious, nothing that will actually harm us. Shadows, lurking, suggestions, emotions. But where is there anything to harm? If we're willing to feel it, if we're willing to see it, if we're willing to expose our life to it, what is an emotion going to do except have us feel it? What is a thought going to do except come and go? What can an archetypical image do when we begin to perceive that all things are changing including every cell in our body and therefore any image we take on is also on its way out. That it means nothing personally. And so we have to guide our practice, the principles behind our practice in accordance with decomposing this system of abstraction and fear related to the abstract. And we do that because we can begin to base ourselves in a silence that can hear thought rather than uh, be directed by thought. As you're listening to me, you can so at some point in your practice hear thought. And when you hear abstraction, rather than invest in the idea that abstraction is real, because when we see the world now, we don't see it as reality. We see it through the lens of abstraction. We have not learned how to see reality as it is. We've learned to put the word upon reality. In fact, neuroscientists tell us that the same pathway of memory is the same pathway of perception. We don't know whether what we're seeing is perce- we're perceiving or whether we're, what we're seeing is a memory of what we're perceiving. Look around. It's obvious. Everything you see, you know. Now think how far from the mystery of the large and the small we are when everything is made into something and known. See how far away the workings of the universe are from us. See how distant, how remote the mysteries that form star clusters and move cells are from our own organic interactions. How we feel We need to be in control. This star should be over here in the sky. Let's do a little bit of tweaking here. That galaxy shouldn't be running into ours. In fact, we have a galaxy running into us. The Andromeda galaxy, in some three billion years, will be colliding with ours. That shouldn't be happening. (laughs) Who do I call? We'll just build a big enough spaceship, right? (laughs) Right. We'll figure out something. When a galaxy of a hundred billion stars is coming at us, we're going to figure out something. (laughs) And a galaxy is a trillion light years across. We better get going. So this is, out of, this is out of our control. And yet, when we look at it, there's a perfection in it, isn't there? The wind's blowing. The thing is moving. It's all moving. Why can't we relax to the way it's moving? Why do we have to assert our influence? We only do so because of our genetic history of thinking that life can be moved differently, better to our prescription. The the lions coming. I don't. I need. Some, I don't need faith to keep me from the lion. I need something that I can. Right. And so we bring forth that desire and that fear. Think of what a desire is. A desire is an abstraction. You don't have something. You want it. It's not here. I want it. The wanting is an abstraction from what's being here. That's what a desire is. Think what a fear is. Situation, I see something, I have a feeling that it's going to, in the future, do something to me. I fear it. I fear it not for what it's doing, for what it's going to do. It's an abstraction. Our desires are an abstraction. Our fear is an abstraction. Desire and fear have been brought into creation because of the way our minds work. Because of our need to abstract. Isn't that amazing? We've created a whole virtual reality of abstraction. We've created a virtual reality, a cyber world of thought. And the bell rings. We're walking. We're in a trance of what we're doing, where we've come from, where we're going. The trance is entirely a trance of abstraction. The bell rings. And the bell is supposed to... Okay. Releasing... The need to have to think in a linear fashion. Just, it's a breath of fresh air. Oh, there's a wake-up bell in the morning. We call it the wake-up bell. Every bell is a wake-up bell. Are you? But how reluctant are we to give up? How important our journey is. Ah, oh, damn the bell. Yeah. <laughs> Just feel it in you. Feel it. It's the reluctance of giving up our heritage, our story, our narrative, our GPS system. I'm left with what? Stillness? That's not going to feed me. So we laugh, but it's dead serious, isn't it? It's dead serious. It's dead serious. We've got ourselves into this mix. Thank God we don't have to go two million years to get out of it. Some of you may. (laughs) If you don't get on the... (laughs) I don't want to do that. Let's end it. Right? It's as close to us as the stillness on which we are really based. Not the concepts that have covered over the stillness. When the concepts are in abeyance, what's left? It's an abstract layer. It's not a real layer. Sound comes out of stillness. Stillness doesn't come out of sound. Sound. And it falls back into sound. Or back into stillness. It comes out of stillness as noise and falls back into stillness. Stillness is the home. Quietude is the home. With quietude comes faith. This thing is moving. Galaxies are colliding. Stars are forming. Cells are moving. Quarks are doing whatever they do. They're quirky. <laughs> and it's all working. It doesn't need our influence. It doesn't need that. It needs our quiet, our joining, our rejoining. And so we sit. And the way we line our sitting up is in accordance to the silence, not in accordance to the noise. We don't argue with the noise. We don't create further discord with whatever it is that's arising. We don't noise the noise. There's no argument. We go for no argument to whatever is arising. That's just further noise. That's further abstraction. This shouldn't be happening. I'm tired of this. I'm irritated at this. I'm aversive to this. I like this. (coughs) We do nothing. In fact, the whole of the practice can be summed. Relax. What noise is in relaxation? Observe. Awareness. What noise is contained in awareness and allow what is there? What noise is there in the absence of resistance? You see, the, the way this practice is always lined up is to do away with a storyteller, to stop feeding the storyteller. But we survive, don't we? We do a pretty good job. We're back there. Well, I had a pretty good meditation. I was relaxing, observing, and allowing.
1: <laughs>
0: we keep raising our head, don't we? We keep being noisy. We keep creating the links between from one silent gap to another. We, we create the noisy link of I across those gaps. We just refuse to go peacefully. And yet peacefully is the only way we'll go. We can't go unpeacefully. We go through non-aggression. We go through love. We love ourselves to death. That's how this thing works. And that's what it means to be still. May all of us learn that lesson. Can we sit for a minute or two?